Hello and welcome to Talking to the Top, a podcast made by students for students. My name is Ed. And my name is Freddie. And we will be your hosts. Throughout these episodes, we'll give you an insight into the lives and minds of incredibly successful people in their respective fields, allowing you to learn more about the world that lies ahead of us all and, most importantly, how our brilliant guests got to where they are today. So sit back, relax, and join us as we dive deep into the stories of these amazing individuals, uncovering the secrets to their success and exploring the many twists and turns of their careers. Our guest today was born in London, Paddington, in 1963. After attending Dulwich College Prep, he then went to study at Sherborne and read theology at Cambridge. He entered the world of drama at a relatively young age, working with the National Youth Theatre and studying at the Weber College Academy of Dramatic Art. As a child, he was fascinated with all elements of theatre, writing and performing in his own productions. He then made his debut film appearance in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and later appeared in hits such as Notting Hill and, of course, Paddington. However, he is perhaps best known for his role as Lord Grantham in Downton Abbey. So our wonderful first guest today, if you haven't already figured, is none other than Mr Hugh Bonneville. Fire away, what is it you're after? So I read your book, Playing Under the Piano, recently, and you mentioned your passion for theatre from a young age, with you kind of making and performing in your own shows. And I was wondering if this meant you had a clear vision for what you wanted to do when you were older, or you were more directionless, like many other students. Um, no, I was totally directionless when I was at uh, what we called O-level stage. Um, in fact, I'd had one of those um, bizarre aptitude tests which um, you sort of fill in a load of questions and then someone tells you that uh, you should be a town planner or a um, driving instructor. I think when I was about 14 or so, the one that I did then said, uh, you should be a journalist or or your aptitude Mm -hmm. is for journalism, which is, you know, true to the extent that I enjoyed writing and I enjoy language to this day. But journalism per se wasn't for me. And in fact, as I went further up the school, I, I sort of knew less and less about what I wanted to do. The careers advice that was sort of introduced when I was at, uh, at, sc- at your school. And um, there was certainly nothing to do with the performing arts in- involved in that. But by the time I went to university, I was uh, very much thinking I was going to be a lawyer. So do you feel there was a particular moment whilst in education where you realised, you know what, I want to pursue a career in acting and so begin to veer away from continuing with law? I probably did a play a term, actually. In fact, I can remember when I was about to do my... I didn't do my fair lady for in my A-level year because my housemaster put his foot down and said, you've done too many and you need to concentrate on doing your A-level. So I lost out um, and uh, broke my heart watching that production. Oh, <laughs> and um, uh, But then it was at university where I did, yeah, I did a lot more plays there as well, uh, far more than I did lectures. And um, it was in my second year that I thought, actually, I'd love to give acting a go. So I gave myself three years to get my equity card. And if I didn't, then I'd go back to law had I not gone to university I wouldn't have gone straight to drama school nor would I recommend it really um I think uh, drama schools like people who've had a little bit of life experience if you go straight from the school environment to the to the drama school environment you haven't got a lot of life experience to bring to the table or to bring to the you know to bring to the training whereas if you've uh, either had um you know a bit of time out a bit a, a year out uh working traveling whatever um, or indeed you know, a further three years at university, then you you, you emerge with a little bit more colour in your cheeks, a bit more experience. 
so that certainly benefited me and when i went to drama school i only i was only signed up to do a, a year's postgrad course but um but actually i left after a term and a bit because um because i got this equity card which as i say was quite elusive in those days many students i think are conscious of the cost of going to university so do you think that that has an influence on the decisions that they make for further education and is there any advice you would give on how to deal with that nowadays there can be more focus on the academics um because of the of the expense of it all is this going to help me get the job or the career that i want to do and it's not for everyone and i don't think i think there's often too much store set by oh we all need to go to uni um so for some people it's just not not the right thing and um and i think we should be more open about that um what i do think and this may be contentious i do think a year off i mean it's it seems to me that that nowadays the 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 strategy seems to be to go straight from school to university or college yeah and um in my day it was the opposite um that i knew very few people who went straight to university and i have and i know very few people who regret having taken a year out um i think it's a great cushion between straddling you know in your case boy and manhood and um but it's you know who i mean there are different pressures these days and different reasons but i certainly benefited from it um uh, because i went to university a tiny bit wiser than i might have been so for those who want to pursue a career in acting and it's probably quite difficult to answer but what three pieces of advice would you give to them I think, well, one here's okay. Here's one, and you have to remind me that there are two more to come afterwards. But, <laughs> yes. uh, the first one is I often say this to drama students that um, you know, if if I ask them, you know, what what are you what are your options? And they say, well, I'm thinking of maybe um, a career in uh, you know in, in acting. Um, I'm also thinking of a career in advertising, but actually, I'm also quite interested in journalism. I'd say do the other two. Absolutely pursue the other two, because acting has to be, and this sounds, might sound a bit sort of romantic or um, dramatic, I suppose, but acting is a need, you know, it's a compulsion as much as anything. Um, it's a bit like being a painter. It's a compulsion. Mm-hmm. You're compelled to act or sing or write music or write poetry. Um, these are instinctual uh, talents. And yes, you can hone them and you can shape them a bit, but they come from a need, uh, a need to, of, of, of self-expression you know acting is a is an all-consuming profession insofar as you are if you think of it like a company or, or a business you know you are the chief executive you are the marketing executive you are the widget you are the product itself um you are the financial director all these things are you and it's a very strange and and almost unique Uh, area of self-employment um i think the second piece of advice is be pragmatic um be be sensible about it um you know i gave myself three years to get my equity card five years to get to my local theater and 10 years to get into the to the royal shakespeare company that was my dream those are my goals i mean i whether i if i didn't get to the rsc in 10 years whether i would have given up i don't know but um but i thought be practical you know if after three years or five years you're not getting anywhere. You're not getting your equity card. Then, then you've just got to wake up and smell the coffee. Some something somewhere is the, the stars aren't aligning for you. And uh, there's something quite painful about seeing people who get cross and bitter because they feel they're not getting the breaks and they've been knocking on the door for years and years and years, and uh, feel that the profession is being unkind to them. The profession owes you nothing. You've got to have a very thick skin to cope with it, um, as well as a thin skin to, as I talk about in the book 
you've got to have a thin skin to be in touch with the side of the character that you need to bring to the audience. But you've also got to have the hide of a rhinoceros because you are facing rejection an awful lot of the time. And the final piece of advice, and I use again my own example, I was about to to leave drama school because I had I'd actually been offered um two equity cards now one was with uh, uh, the open air theater regions park and one was with a theater in education company and i didn't know anyone in the profession i didn't know the ins and outs of things at all um but my parents knew one person who was a, an agent's assistant and so i was went and had a cup of tea with her and i said look i've been given these choices what do you think and she said oh, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind you should not go to regions park and hold a spear and be an understudy because you'll be miserable um, sitting in the wings most of the time. You should go and do the theatre in education in which you're doing Shakespeare in a, you know, uh, four or five of us basically based in, in, in the back, back of a car, driving around various schools, doing bits of Shakespeare. You'll get to play all the parts that you're not going to play for several years yet. You'll be in front of a kid's audience who will be very educative and all that. That would be my advice. So I said, thank you very much indeed, Anne. And I did the opposite. Um, because I think ultimately you should listen to advice, but ultimately follow your own instinct. And my instinct was I want to be watching grown-up actors doing what they do. And I think I'll learn more from observing and by osmosis than, than I will by, um, you know, for all the fair points that uh, this lady was making, my instinct was to do Regent's Park and I have absolutely no regrets. You've done a lot on stage and on screen. And on screen, you're arguably best known for your role as Lord Grantham in Downton Abbey. What was it like to work on such a beloved show and continue to live up to the expectations of such a role? It was interesting because when we did the first year of it in 2010, I guess it was, um, you know, obviously nobody knew it was going to be remotely successful. In fact, our producers had said, they said, oh, don't worry about the option because let's face it, these sorts of shows only run one year anyway. So we'll just have a nice time doing it the first year. And, you know, we couldn't sort of, uh, couldn't uh, couldn't get anyone interested to do the, to interview us or to, in order to promote the film. And the marketing and publicity department had a really tough time. But, you know, ITV really got behind it and um, and pushed it. And then something extraordinary happened after the first episode. Normally when they put a certain amount into the marketing budget and the publicity, um, uh the uh, that gets a, a you know a, a decent first audience and then usually it drops by 10 20 30 40 percent you know for the next week next episode because people have heard all the splash and thought oh it's not for me but you know some will stay with it i've never been in a show where the audience went up in the second week um because the word of mouth was so strong and then it built and built and built and was getting i can't remember something like 12 million which is unheard of you know nowadays um it was quite strange to come back to Highclere Castle the second year, and I remember talking to one of the one of the guys who you know runs the castle, um, and him saying that you know, in the year that we'd been fil- first filming, they had about sixty coach loads of tourists come, and in the uh, second year, by the time we came back for the second year, they had six hundred booked, and it sort of escalated from there. So we began to be aware that this was a, a big, big you know becoming a big thing, a big old juggernaut. And we had to have start having things like our scripts written, uh, the covers of our scripts written in a different way. It no longer said Downton Abbey on them, um, <clears throat> and um, all the sort of markers on the roads when we, you know, when you have filming units driving around there to have sort of code on them. Um, we literally had to have security, and they were pulling, you know, on private land they were able to pull photographers, paparazzi out of trees. In public land they couldn't, they couldn't obviously do that, so they had to sort of 
but, but virtually do a sort of dance in luminous gear to try and stop them uh, spoiling. That's the weird thing. You know, the, the tabloids actually want to destroy programs. They don't want to promote them. They want to destroy programs by giving everything away so they can second guess what um, uh, what's coming up in a plot uh, and try and you know ruin it for everyone, which is strange. What do you feel was the toughest thing to deal with when the show gained the attention that it did? What was tough, not so much playing the part, and for all of us, not so much playing the roles, it was just trying to protect each other because it became this slightly strange beast that got bigger than all of us and, and or bigger, not bigger than all of us, but um, more, more, more difficult to control because there was so much interest in it wherever we went in the world. And it's a lovely, you know, it's a lovely problem to have. Um, but it was, uh, it, it, you had to start, you know, really being conscious of what, uh, uh, what you were saying in public because you know it could easily be, be you know construed in the wrong way and that sort of side effect of being in something very popular um when there are lots of uh, uh people in the wings wanting to throw bricks at you because it's the tall poppy syndrome you know we, we you know, britain has this extraordinary capacity for building something up and then wanting to chop it off at the knees you know um uh, and uh, so we became, we became, I would say, quite protective of each other. We were a close, and, and still are a close gang. Um, but it's, you know, it 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 remains a, a huge part of my life, and all our lives have been in, involved in it. And uh, I'm hugely proud of it. And um, the fact that it's, uh, the, I think, the most uh, gratifying part of it all is that it's it brought families together. Um, and actually, bearing in mind that it. Um, Bearing in mind that its last episode went out in 2015, so that's you know um, eight years ago. Um, um, lots of people watched it again during lockdown, um, and lots of people write and say, you know, I, it, I watching it again moved me because I used to watch it with my gran, who's passed on, or, or that sort of thing. There was a genuine uh, connect. Can, it, it connected families, I, I think, um, a lot of the time, and that was a, a lovely thing to be part of or to be aware of. So looking back on your career, would you say that there is a turning point that you could pinpoint? And I wonder if it changed your approach to acting and your perspective on the industry. Um, that's a fair question. And I think I go back to an, uh, a point I made earlier, probably my getting my equity card, actually. Um, it was such a formative uh, gear change for me. Because up to that point, I'd done the National Youth Theatre. The National Youth Theatre was a really key part of my teenage years, as well as school plays and that sort of thing. But you know, the day before, up until the day before I got my equity card, I was doing, I was doing acting for free. I loved it. It was just a hobby and a passion. And then I got, I got my equity card and I started getting paid. I couldn't believe it. I got 103 pounds for my first job. It was just brilliant. So that was the gear change for me. And when I thought, my goodness, this is now a profession. I'm now a professional actor. I am paid to do what I, uh, what I produce. What you know, as I say, I'll go back to the widget. I am the widget and it's now for sale <laughs> and I can earn an income from it. Um, or sporadically, you know, um, but I've been very fortunate. I'm, you know, one of the luckiest actors I know. I managed to keep working for three and a half decades. You mentioned earlier the National Youth Theatre and recently you've done some incredible work for them. And I was wondering what sparked that desire for you to give back to others. And are you able to tell me a little bit more about the work that you do? Uh, yeah, it's very simple. I was, you know, I was brought up, um, I was given huge opportunities, as you two have been. I went to a school which encouraged investigation and, and uh, experience of the arts. It was handed to me on a plate. And when I joined the National Youth Theatre, only then, when I was 16, only then did I begin to really have my eyes open to the fact that, oh, not everyone lives in this 
privileged world like I have. Not everyone has these opportunities. And increasingly, I began to realize how, you know, really incredibly fortunate I was. And that when I was at the National Youth, I was at the NYT, I was meeting, you know, um, kids from all, all walks of life across the UK, um, all sorts of backgrounds, um, some of them with zero uh, experience of the arts in their own family life. And I sort of, I guess it sort of crept into me then to, that if ever I got the opportunity, uh, it was my responsibility to open up opportunities for those less fortunate than myself. And as you say, that is fortunately a, a human instinct to help others, I think. And then when it came to, this is pre-lockdown actually, um, you know, I got a letter from someone saying that they couldn't afford the audition fee for the National Youth Theatre. And, and I can't remember how much it was, but it's, you know, didn't seem a lot, but of course to that person, it was a lot. And so I had conversations with them about how to open up the access, uh, you know, to people who either couldn't afford to audition, couldn't get to auditions because they lived somewhere so remote. So I said, instead of them having to go to hubs, I mean, when I first joined NYT, um, the auditions were pretty much only in London. So if you didn't have that access to London, then you were a bit stuck. Now, all these years later, its tendrils have spread across the UK brilliantly. Um, but nevertheless, there had been up to that point audition hubs, you know, in different parts of the country. And I said, how about, you know, we set up a fund if I, well, I put it, you know, put together some money that we can actually send NYT practitioners out to the outflung, you know, corners of the nation that don't have these opportunities uh, and certainly, you know, don't get visited much by the arts. And I was thrilled that after two years of this going, um, we uh, about 25% of the NYT intake was from this access fund that we'd set up. Um, you know, people from you know really far flung corners of Wales or uh, or deprived areas of even Southampton, which sounds a bit daft. You know, you think well, Southampton that's quite accessible, but you know there are areas that are really really hard done by it. And of course, then the pandemic came along and everything had to go online anyway. And the NYT, you know, brilliantly adapted itself, and so actually. The access fund is not irrelevant, but it's, um, you know, the the, um, the hub, as they now call it, has a whole new um, uh, way of contacting people. Uh, the, this whole Zoom world, which didn't exist, let's face it, before lockdown, not in the same way anyway. Um, uh, and so I was immensely, you know, proud of being part of that initiative. You were talking about help and many students struggle with their families and their family's support for their career aspirations. And I was wondering how supportive your family was and has been with your career. I hadn't intended to, to write about my parents in the book, but actually I do. And substantially, but about my dad. And I realise it's because I was, my, I'm so indebted to them for their support. Um, and they crafted or shaped or gave me the opportunity or the freedom to do what I wanted to do. And of course, every parent reckons they're bringing up their kid in the best way. And as Philip Larkin so gamely said, you know, they fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. You know, so uh, every generation makes its own mistakes. But of course, there are some, I would like to think that in these days, parents are a little more liberal minded, but um, there are still some who say, you know, you will not go on the stage or no, you will not become a ballerina. You will go and um, you will go and do something sensible my parents gave me the the freedom to try. They said, when I said, look, I've got this idea that I will want to give acting a go. And if three years down the line, I don't, you know, get my equity card, then I'll, I'll go, I'll go to law school. And um, they said, we're right behind you, you know? And I, I often wonder if, if they'd said, don't be ridiculous, go to law school, 
whether I would have had the courage to to run off and join the circus. I don't. I, I think I think I probably would have done. But but I respected them hugely, and the, and their their approval meant a lot to me. And uh, they're both passed on now, but um, they were um, immensely important in my life. And um, they were great people and um, dynamic people. Um, they were medics. They were nothing to do with, with the entertainment profession, but they loved the arts in, in a small way. They weren't highfalutin or intellectual snobs or anything like that. They just liked, they liked opera. I didn't like opera particularly, but, you know, the, the, the arts were something in their everyday life. It was part of their diet, if you like, like playing squash was for dad or doing the church flowers was for mum. You know, it was just part of their life. And again, you know, as I grew up, I realised that so few, you know, so few kids around the country have that all round cultural education, you know, that what I call the white noise of culture, just just a sort of general background hum. And um, so I'm immensely grateful to their to them for that support. And um, and they weren't pushy in, in any direction, but they were liberating. And that was uh, that was profoundly important. So would you say you've ever struggled with imposter syndrome or self-doubt? And if so, how have you managed to work your way through it? Um, yes, is the answer. I, I mean, you know, I do feel ridiculously fortunate that I do something I love and that I used to do, as I say, for free as a kid. <laughs> um, and so I do sometimes think I'm going to get a tap on the shoulder and someone's going to say, right, you've had your fun, now go and get a proper job. Um, because it is fun. And as I reiterate time and again, I know how fortunate I am. I take nothing for granted. Every job is my last job. Uh, and every job I go on to, I want to do my best. And I, you know, and I take none of it for granted. And I appreciate all the crew. Um, I don't go around, you know, sending them cards and hugging them. But I mean, I really, you know, I respect the degree of craftsmanship that we have in this country. We have phenomenal talent. Um on screen and off and on stage and off. Um, and uh, it is a, you know, it's a multi-billion pound industry. And to see how it was hamstrung during the pandemic was painful, as all professions were. But, um, you know, we, we as, a, as a profession, we sort of rallied around and, um, and looked after each other, I, I like to think. Um, there was certainly a lot of support for, for freelancers um, who were, who, particularly in the theatre, who were completely stuffed. Just to go back to what you were talking about before with your family and their support, for those who don't have that support, would there be anything you would suggest they did to tackle that? That's an interesting one, and I can't, you know, one can only speak for oneself. Um, but if you are passionate about something, whether it's, you know, um, um, you know playing music or, or, or doing something out of the ordinary, like, you know, oh, I don't know, even if you want to get into data you know, and coding and all the sort of things that I don't understand, but but maybe your you know your parents are from a different uh, discipline or find it odd, and people are only nervous about stuff they don't understand. And parents often, you know, and I'm guilty of this myself with my own son. You know, I sort of try and understand, but of course you're from a different generation. Each generation makes its own mistakes and plows its own furrow. Um, but I think have the confidence in your own ability. It's somehow, even, unless you're being sort of, um, you know, locked out of home for, for for doing something that is so appalling that you shouldn't be doing it. Um, I think if your parents are disapproving, try and explain it to them. Try to explain the pleasure that it gives you or the interest you find in it. Um, because they they would have been through something similar themselves, would be my would be my hunch. But even if they, even if you can't get any dialogue going on that, do link up with people that do share your passion. You know, if you're if you're really into, as I say, a certain discipline. I can't think of any examples now, but 
I don't know, even if it's Dungeons and Dragons, I mean, for goodness sake, you know, you just find your tribe and um, and you'll get a, you know, there's nothing better than finding your tribe. I was looking for that in my teens and I found it in theatre and I found it in the National Youth Theatre. I was fortunate. Many people don't find their tribe, not even into their 20s um, or find the thing that gives them a buzz or, you know, and it's not, it's not, you know, it's not, uh, it's not compulsory. Um, you know, I always feel guilty. I think, oh, God, you know, people say, what are your hobbies? I haven't got a hobby. I mean, my work is my hobby. <laughs> and um, I sort of think I should be collecting stamps. Oh, my goodness, I'm I'm, I'm so uninteresting. Um, but uh, I think if you if you do find a thing that, that floats your boat, that, that, you know, lights the blue touch paper, then celebrate it. And if you're if the people who are responsible for, for guiding you sort of scratch their head and say, I just don't understand why, try and explain it without being shouty about it. But try and make them help them understand what it is that um, fulfills you in, in whatever it is that you are passionate about. You were talking about finding your tribe and throughout your career, I'm sure you've worked with many talented people. And so I was interested to know if there are any collaborations or individuals that you have worked with, which you feel have been kind of particularly impactful for you or if there's anything you've learned from these collaborations. Well, there have been many over the years, and I'm always a firm believer in 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 answering the first thing that comes into one's head. And and actually, and I could therefore I reserve the right to you know have a different answer tomorrow. Um, but the first thing that came into my head was a particular director called Susanna White, with whom I've worked twice. And um, first of all, I did a film about Philip Larkin, the poet, the one I quoted earlier. Um, and it was a very tight little script. Uh, it was for BBC Two. It's uh, you know it didn't make a big splash, but uh, it was a terrific piece of work, and I'm immensely proud of it. Um, called Love Again, and it was all about Philip Larkin and his his girlfriends, basically. Um, but also delving into his poetry and what made him tick. Um, and I was really scared of doing it because I, you know, look nothing like Philip Larkin, and I certainly don't have his brain. And uh, I didn't know how we were going to make it. But her, the way she directed it, I thought was superb. And then some years later, I did a one-man show with her called um, Diary of a Nobody, which was a um, basically me talking to the camera for two hours um, in different, ep- you know, we just chopped it up into episodes. But nevertheless, it was a huge challenge for me and I thought I'd never be able to to do this which is one of the reasons I wanted to do it so in fact I think if I look back those collaborations with her were really formative because they were both well out of my comfort zone in different ways one was just a a feat of learning and and discipline uh, of of addressing a camera Um, and the other was just playing a part that I I really didn't think was in my you know equipment uh, that I didn't have you know didn't have the tools for uh, and I and they both ended up, you know, I'm, I'm proud of both of them, uh, but I'm proud of the way that Susanna and I worked together on those two projects and um, brought them to life. Um, as I say, neither of them made a massive splash in the world, but they made a, they were important to me. I just wanted to say a huge congratulations on the Coronation concert. It was amazing to watch and especially with Miss or should I say Lady Piggy. Um, it, yeah, it was brilliant. But I was just wondering, how were you approached for that? And are you able to tell us or is it still very much a secret? No, no, no. I got a phone call from the boss of BBC One, who I've not met. And uh, she called me on my mobile. And uh, first of all, I thought, I should get my number. Then I thought, well, you know, everyone can get someone's number somehow. And uh, she said, uh, there's going to be the coronation weekend. There's a concert on the Sunday at Windsor Castle. Would you be uh, able to uh, introduce it? So I sort of you know, looked at my diary and went, uh, yeah, I'm not doing anything that day. Yeah, that seems okay. And literally, that's all I thought. It wasn't until the sort of press started, you know, all the comments started building about it. And you sort of heard that you know, there was Lionel Richie, Katy Perry, um, Ollie Murs and, and various others, you know, beginning to be assembled. 
And I thought, oh, this is a bit bigger than I thought. And then, mm-hmm. and then I said, and last week I saw a picture of the stage, you know, the staging. I thought, blimey, it's massive. And um, and only when I got there on Sunday morning, because I'd grandly said, oh, look, I don't need rehearsal. I'm just going to turn up on the, you know, I'll turn up half an hour before we can do a microphone check and I'll be on. And they said, actually, no, it would be helpful if you actually rehearse. The others are rehearsing for th- th- over three days beforehand. And again, I started to realise the scale of it. But only when I got there on Sunday morning did I realise quite how massive it was. So just before we started, I just had to do some deep breaths and say, look, there's just 20,000 of your closest friends out there, plus however many millions watching on telly. Uh, and anyway, it all, it all passed off well. But I have to say I was incredibly impressed with the team that put it together. I mean, the logistics, as you can imagine, of having hun- literally hundreds of people backstage waiting to come on. And um, uh, it was amazing. And it only ran over by three minutes. So it was pretty good uh, stage management all around. Earlier, you mentioned the advice you had received throughout your career. And it was interesting to hear about how you didn't necessarily take that advice and you often stuck to your instincts. Do you feel that through doing that, you have actually become more successful than you would have been if you took others' advice at face value? Uh, that's, that's a very that's a very pertinent question. I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I think I think by following your own instinct, I always say listen to the advice, but then follow your own instinct. You know, because some of the advice is sound and, and sometimes you do follow as long as it chimes in with your own instinct. Uh, and I'm sure there have been some choices I've made out of uh, out of my gut instinct that have probably been the wrong ones. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a few projects that haven't worked and maybe I should have listened to either my agent or my friend or, um, you know, um, someone saying, are you sure you want to do that? You know, um, but actually I don't mind because they've been my choices. I've, I've, uh, you know, I'm. Um, then I can only blame myself. And, and as I say, the profession owes you nothing. You can rant and rave as much as you like, but you're the, the end product. And um, uh, so I feel completely comfortable that the choices I've made have been my own, um, and I haven't been sort of forced into things. Or you know, there was one time, one time I think I did a job for the wrong reasons. I think I thought I, I just need the money, I'll take it, and I was miserable. It was a miserable job. Um, you know, and I'm, again, I'm very fortunate that I am you know, in a position to, to to be offered work rather than having to take work. And then I realise that's not the case in so many people's lives. I can go to my grave comfortable that I, the choices, the mistakes I've made have been my own. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that many successful individuals face a point where they question if they're going to make it. So was there ever a point in your career where you felt you weren't going to make it? And if so, how did you deal with that? Um, I don't, I've never felt that because to be, and I'm being really honest here, I'm not yeah, trying to dance, fine. dance around the question, but I, um, I felt I'd made it when I got my equity card. That was the biggest moment of my life. Um, I, and that's all I ever wanted was to be an actor. I didn't want to be a star. I just want to be an actor. And the happiest times I've ever had, um, uh, are, are just being on stage in a company or on a film set with a company of actors. I'm not interested in the byproducts, I enjoy entertaining audiences and being part of a story that entertains audiences. So that notion, which I know some people have, of I, I need to make it, I need to be validated. For me, each performance is a validation of what I do, um, uh, be it a telly or a, or a play. And uh, so uh, I, as I say, I, I don't, I don't, you know, feel any problem with with that. And 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 each and each each production. Is the, is the next peak, you know, really for me, and, and I've got no, I've had no, never had a strategy apart from just trying to keep working, um, and uh, yeah, so that's, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I think anyone who says they've made it, 
I'm a little bit wary of because it's, it has a hint of arrogance and I think you can always do better. As an actor then, would you say that you have fulfilled your aspirations or is there still a long list of things you want to do or achieve? Uh, I, well, definitely, I, as I, it's linked to the last question, really, the last answer, that uh, I just love working. I'm, I'm very fortunate to be offered a variety of things, be it um, you know, comedy, drama, TV, theatre, film. Uh, and so, so long as I can keep working and um, keep breathing and and keep uh, not um, annoying people on set so that they do <laughs> like working with me, uh, vice versa, um, then I want to keep going. Um, uh, I've got no, I've got no great uh, checklist or bucket list of roles I need to play, but um, I will say, you know, which then people say which part do you want to play, and I will say the next one. Um, and we you know I work on a pretty much on a cab cab rank principle. You know, if if work is offered me, I'll go yes, no, or yeah, I'm aboard or I'm not aboard. And um, it's slightly different for me now because I am and again in the fortunate position of stuff being brought to me very early on in its in its in its creative process. It's sometimes even before the book's been printed, people will say, "Would you attach yourself if this becomes a film?" Nine times out of ten, they don't. But you know, so you sort of find yourself being attached to projects. Um, which is again flattering, but only very few of them actually come to fruition. Um, and then, of course, it's like you know, several buses come at once, um, and so you have to then have to choose and, and let some people down. And I hate letting people down. So um, anyway, uh, it's uh, you know, it's um, it's a, it's a rich it's a rich universe out there, and it seems to be more creative and productive than ever. And I'm you know hugely honoured to be part of it. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I found your answers really interesting and I'm sure they'll be really useful for people who are considering their careers. No, a great pleasure and good luck to everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Talking to the Top. Talking to the Top is hosted and produced by myself, Edward Brooke, and co-hosted by Freddie Feynman. It was edited by James Crawford and the music was created by Daniel Marks. 